Gracious and loving God, thank you for bringing us safely to a new week, and we ask your blessing upon us as we study the book of Exodus today, that we would learn something new about ourselves and about you, and that we would come alive as we find ourselves in your grace and the story uh, still alive today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of pi ha between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall camp opposite it by the sea. Pharaoh will save the Israelites. They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people. And they said, what have we done letting Israel leave our service? So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back, and there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to keep still. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's forces, chariots and chariot drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the Egyptian army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians upon their chariots and chariot drivers. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at dawn, the sea returned to its normal depth. As the Egyptians fled before it, the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the chariot drivers, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Then the Lord and the Israelites sang this song to the, to, 
Then, then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my might, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His picked officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your, overthrew your adversaries. You sent out your fury. It consumed them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his chariot drivers went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing, and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. Then Moses ordered Israel to set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. That is why it was called Merah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he put them to the test. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give heed to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. A few quick notes. Uh, and so uh, we've already gone through the 10th plague and we remember the scene where Egypt was eager to send the Hebrews out and to give them gold and jewelry. Uh, so overwhelming was the Lord's display of power and so convicted was Pharaoh and all the Egyptians that it was time for these people to leave. And so they've set out. And what we find at the beginning of Exodus 14, I mean, there's really no better way to put this other than to say that God sets up an ambush, um, that there is really just a military ambush that's about to happen. Um, that God tells Moses to instruct the Israelites to turn back uh, so that 
Pharaoh will say that they're wandering aimlessly in the land and God again will harden Pharaoh's heart. It's almost as if uh, Yahweh's defeat over Pharaoh is not complete enough yet, that there must be a total shattering of Pharaoh. And so we ask the question, what's going on? And remember, Pharaoh set himself up as a God to the people. You know, he said, I do not know the Lord and I will not let them go. And part of the worldview being established here is that there is only one God and all so-called pretend gods um, need to be destroyed. And so in one portion of Exodus, that's Pharaoh. And another portion of Exodus is going to be a golden calf. Uh, and we're going to remember the first commandment. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet in our study, but we all know the first commandments. I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And so there's a big theme in Exodus where any one or anything that sets itself up as a God will need to be destroyed. And that's kind of what's happening here as God sets up an ambush uh, over Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. The point is for God to gain glory over Pharaoh so that the Egyptians shall know that Yahweh is the Lord. Because right now the Egyptians probably still think that Pharaoh is the Lord. And so that's a little bit of what's going on here. And so the ambush works. And whenever uh, the king of Egypt um, is told that the people had fled, that they are wandering aimlessly, um, we're told that um, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed. And that's very interesting language because often uh, the way that we translate the Greek word metanoia, which is uh, repent, is a change of mind. It's when one turns or changes one's mind. It's almost like Pharaoh repents in the wrong direction. Um, he was cooperating with Yahweh, but now he is changing his mind. It's like a bad form of repentance and reestablishing himself uh, as the God whom the Israelites should serve. Uh, we're told uh, essentially that uh, when the Egyptians say, what have we done and letting Israel leave our service, essentially all the people have forgotten, right? I mean, it's like the plagues never happened. They have forgotten uh, Yahweh's awesome power. And the reason I point out that word forgotten is because it stands in stark contrast to the ethical imperative to remember right? That word remember is going to repeat itself throughout the book of Exodus. Uh, God tells the people, remember what I have done. You know, tell it to your children and to your children's children. Because in a sense, all sin or all negative repentance, you know, changing our mind to serve ourselves again, it's, it's always some form of amnesia. We forget who God is. We forget who we are. And the Egyptians have forgotten, and so they pursue the Israelites. And of course, this terrifies the Israelites. We're told in verse 10 that in great fear, they cry out to the Lord. And not only do they cry out to the Lord, they accuse the Lord um, of malice. They, they accuse the Lord of having bad intentions. They say, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. And so not only are the people not trusting 
in God. They are accusing God of having bad intentions. And this really begins the murmurings that will punctuate the wilderness narrative. But, um, you know, God is gracious. And so through Moses, he says to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to keep still. And I think that's a very interesting thing for us to uh, ponder and maybe have some conversation about. Um, the Lord will fight for you. Your main job is just to keep still. And I'd, I'd invite you to think about what that means for your life. You know, where is it that you've been spinning in circles trying to get yourself out of a predicament and you haven't actually stayed still enough to see if God or the Holy Spirit might open up a new avenue in your life? Uh, so where is it that you need to keep still? And as we discussed whenever we had this study on Sunday, keeping still is not the same thing as complete inactivity. Uh, it is a posture of expectant waiting. But as we wait, we are told to move forward. And that's exactly what the Israelites do. They step um, um, into the waters, right, that are divided. They move through the Red Sea. Uh, and we're told that the Lord drives the sea back by a strong east wind. That Hebrew word translated wind can also mean spirit. It can mean breath. It's the same word that shows up in Genesis chapter one uh, at the creation. So this is the creative wind or spirit of God. But we also remember that verse we discussed in Exodus six, where the people could not hear Moses because of their broken spirit. And Robert Alter's translation of that was shortness of breath. And so th there is no breath. There's no wind in the people when they're enslaved. And so contrast that with the strong wind, the strong breath, the strong spirit of God now showing up to fight for them. That thing that they lacked whenever they were slaves is now showing up in a powerful way and it blows all night. Now, this is um, something that I found very interesting about this passage. So here are the Israelites. Uh, they're being pursued again by the people who have enslaved them for over 400 years. Um, they're being chased and they're moving through the Red Sea as God parts the waters. And uh, Robert Alter tells us that because in verse 24, we're told that at the morning watch, the Lord shows up in a pillar of fire and cloud uh, to look down upon the Egyptian army. Uh, so this is going to be between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's the morning watch. Robert Alter's uh, interpretation of this was that for the previous four hours from 10 a.m. to 2 a.m., that this is when the Hebrews would have had to cross the Red Sea in the dead of night. Um, and although we're not explicitly told that the pillar of fire is not guiding them, you know, Robert Alter's reading of the text is that the implication is that God sent them to walk into the Red Sea in complete darkness. And I think there's a lot for us to ponder there about faith being uh, about moving forward in darkness, right? We can play with the metaphor of darkness. And what does it mean to walk into darkness as we trust that the Lord is fighting for us?
But nevertheless, between 2 and 6 a.m., the Lord shows up and he throws the Egyptians into a panic. And uh, as the Egyptians flee, the Lord brings the waters back uh, and it encloses into the Egyptians and they drown. And the significance of this, I think, is that we remember that whenever Pharaoh initially uh, had his decree that all Hebrew males would be thrown into the, the river, that they'd, they'd be uh, drowned, um, now you have the Egyptians meeting the same fate, right? And who would have had to carry out that order? It would have been the male warriors of the nation. And so the male warriors of the nation that first sought to drown every Hebrew male are now meeting that very fate. And so there's a big theme of justice uh, and that with God, we don't get away with things forever. You know, that the Egyptians got away with it for a season, but now God is showing up and uh, the very people that sought to drown every Hebrew male are now meeting that same fate. And so um, the Israelites see this and they immediately go into worship. They say, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously, horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Uh, that verse, he has triumphed gloriously. In Hebrew, it's a pun, right? So the Hebrew word, it can mean a person being exalted, but it's also the same verb used for the rising tide of the sea that actually drowned the Egyptians, right? The triumphing waves uh, that then enclosed upon the Egyptians. And so in the same way that the, the waves um, uh, would rise, uh, that same verb is uh, now ascribed to Yahweh. So there's a little bit of a pun happening. And the subsequent verses, there's just a lot of praising of God's mighty acts. And for us, I think that that is a good reminder that that is ultimately what prayer and worship is. We don't celebrate our strength. We don't celebrate our victory. We celebrate God's victory. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what is it that the Hebrews contribute to this victory? They, they essentially just contribute their fear and their bickering, you know. I mean, from beginning to end, this is God delivering people who may not want to be delivered, who complain about their deliverance. Um, and and so uh, it's not like the Hebrews do 50% of the work and God does 50% of the work, that from beginning to end, this is about God's saving action. And I think that's a good reminder for us as we think about the true meaning of the Christian faith, because as much as uh, we want to talk about our practices of piety, and that's really, really important, all that takes a, a backseat to God being the one who fights for us and delivers us. And so God does that, and they uh, leave the Red Sea, and then they're in the wilderness. And uh, in the wilderness, they have no water. And this is a huge problem. Uh, and so uh, Moses uh, takes a piece of wood, and he throws it uh, into the water, and the water becomes drinkable. And uh, then we're basically told that uh, the Lord has done this to put the people to the test. And the reason I share that is because as we read the wilderness narrative, we're going to be looking for some comparisons with Exodus and Genesis chapter three, because 
the people are saved, they're in the wilderness, but there are going to be some limits that God asks them to submit to. In the same way that Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, and there was a limit that God asked them to submit to. In a sense, it was a test. And Adam and Eve ultimately ate that piece of fruit because they believed that the limit God placed upon them was not in their best interest, that God did not have their best interest at heart. And we can already see seeds of that with the Hebrews who are saying, oh, God only brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. You know, God is not really good. God does not really have our best interest at heart. And so the chapter closes with a definitive statement that I am the Lord who heals you. I mean, in a sense, if we were to read um, the behavior of the Israelites through the lens of trauma, which of course was not information that was available um, at all when this was written or, or even in, in most of history. But, you know, you think about four centuries of trauma, of course they don't trust God. They have to learn to trust God. And in a sense, to be alive is to experience some trauma. Uh, now, some people experience real, like, significant trauma. Uh, other people, the trauma is more kind of garden variety, developmental stuff. But to live in this world is to experience some trauma. It's to experience um, oppression. It's to experience not having our voice heard. It's to experience uh, needing someone to stick up for us and no one being there, right? We all have our experience of, of trauma. And one of the things we know about trauma is that it makes it very, very difficult for the brain and for the heart to trust somebody whenever we're traumatized. And so I love how the chapter ends. I am the Lord who heals you. And so this theme of saving and healing are going to be deeply connected as we read the Bible and the Old Testament in particular. And part of that healing is time in the wilderness. And that opens up all sorts of interesting things to talk about whenever we find ourselves in the wilderness and we're so eager to go to the promised land immediately. Uh, is it possible that the wilderness is necessary for your healing so that you can actually enjoy the promised land God's bringing you to? Uh, how is it that we need to be healed? Because one of the things that is very, very clear whenever we read about the Hebrews coming out of slavery is that a whole lot is going to need to happen in their life in order for them to actually be the faithful people of God. You know, that just giving them the commandments is not going to cut it, that they actually need to experience healing. And God is the one who heals. Uh, and so that's kind of how the chapter closes. So 